Um, so ninth grade, I got out finally of my zookeeper phase. Um, so I wanted to be a zookeeper all of middle school. I wanted to work with cheetahs. Like that was AJ's dream, right? Wanted to be a cat person. Big cat person, not small cats. I still hate small cats. If you can, if you can punt it, it's not a real animal. Um, except for a pug. Those are real. Um, but, like, I wanted big cats. Like, to the point, like, I'd watched this documentary of, like, uh, a zoologist who had, um, had cheetahs grow up in their home. And I thought, I want to be that person, right? Like, I want to be sitting at a dinner table at a party that I have. And a cheetah about this big comes around the corner and terrifies my guests. Like, ah, ah, it's a cheetah. Uh, I always thought that was cool. Um, but uh, that phase ended. Um, and in ninth grade, I don't know. I mean, I had watched the Indiana Jones films multiple times at this point. Um, so I don't know if it was perpetrated by that or I just started to read a lot more history. But I entered AJ's I want to be an archaeologist phase. Right? I, I seriously, I would daydream about being on the dig site of these temples in the Amazon or in some desert, like, I longed to be Indiana Jones. And even now, like, that part still wows me, still amazes me. Me and Joe have a favorite um, uh, celebrity on television named Josh Gates, and he gets to travel and study all these crazy old cultures, um, and it's just cool. And one of the things that always fascinates me about archaeology is they could dig up stuff, right? And they could tell by looking at the structure, the rocks, the sticks, whatever it was, whether it was man-made or man-used for a natural occurrence, right? Um, I just got done watching a show called uh, The Curse of Oak Island with my children, um, yeah, I got some. I love that show. It's now my kid's favorite show. My son doesn't even know. It's called The Curse of Oak Island. He just calls it 10X. Um, 10X, we got to watch 10X, uh, which is where they dig for gold in season three, which we just watched. And, um, and they're fascinated by it, right? But it's those things in archaeology where they would see a rock and they'd be like, well, it's flat on this side, it's flat on this side, and it's flat on this side, which means it's got a 90-degree angle here which means it's not natural, right? Nature doesn't do that stuff. Nature doesn't create 90-degree angles. It's the same reason that when you go visit Mount Rushmore, you don't look at it and think, wow, you know, that snowstorm did a great job of carving the four faces of the presidents. That's amazing. That is a natural wonder. Right? You don't do that. Because you recognize when design is present. It's, it's, one of those, it's just one of those things in archaeology. I, you know, I just think it's cool when they suddenly find something. They're like, this is not natural. This is something that somebody, some intelligence has used. And one of the certain characteristics that point to intelligence is information. Right? When archaeologists discover a rock, cool, it's a rock, but it suddenly becomes an important rock when language is inscribed into the rock. Oh, 
that's information because they look at the rock and they go, there's no way a sandstorm wrote Bob is buried here. No way, right? Even if you gave a monkey a chisel, let me rephrase that. Even if you gave a million monkeys chisels with a hammer and you gave them a million years to work on rocks, we know from probability theory that because they, one, don't know language, and two, don't know how to use hammer and chisel, that they would never spell Bob is buried here with a banana, right? They'd never write that because information dictates intelligence. No archaeologist who sees a written language assumes it's a natural phenomenon because written languages presuppose intelligence. So this is the non-defensive side of apologetics that I've mentioned a couple weeks ago. Apologetics, if you remember from our first lesson, has two points. It's like a shield, but it's got pointy edges, right? Like apologetics means defense of the faith, but there are things in apologetics that you can use to go on the offensive. And this information theory is one of those things. Today, we're going to be talking about the teleological argument for the existence of God. Everyone say teleological. Teleological. Awesome. When you go home tonight, your parents say, what did you learn? Yeah, you can be like the teleological argument for God's existence. And they're going to be like, explain that to us. And you're going to be like, just listen to the podcast. I don't know how to break that down to you. And that's fine. I encourage you folks to listen to the podcast too. But teleos is derived from the Latin word of purpose or goals. So when we look at something like information... Information has a purpose, namely to tell us something about what is on the item. Okay? You go to the store, you see a tag, it says $9.99. That information tells you, specifically in the American context, that those pants that Watson are going to buy are $9.99. And the coupon that Watson has for 50% off tells him that he can get them for a steal. That's right. Yeah. So information dictates purpose, right? So teleological argument for God's existence can be explained in multiple different ways. But I'm going to give you a modified one for tonight that works within DNA, which is what we're going to be talking about. DNA is the stuff that we're made of. You'll learn that in a second um, if you've not had science. Um, but here is the argument, okay? So argument goes A... <clears throat> A and B, B and C, therefore, A equals C. So if A equals B and B equals C, therefore, B, I mean, A equals C. It's your basic monus ponens argument. It's logic, okay? It's how you should make arguments. They don't teach that in school anymore because they don't want you to argue, argue for something. They just want you to intake stuff and regurgitate and then tweet about it. Um, yeah. So here is the argument for teleology. Information is created by an intelligent cause. Everyone agree? Yeah. I don't think anyone would disagree with that statement. No mathematician, no archaeologist, no biologist. Information is created by an intelligent cause. Point two. Life on the planet is made up of information. Literally a written language. 
Therefore, life on the planet is created by an intelligent cause. That's our argument. So if anyone's like, give me an argument for the existence of God. Boom, baby. Here's the teleological argument. I got two more. I can give you the moral and I can give you the cosmological too. But here's the teleological one argument for the existence of God. This is an offensive weapon that you can use as you explain, um, explain the existence of God to people. So teleos. So today we're going to look at DNA. What is it? What are the implications, etc.? And from there, we're going to continue to look at the tactics with engaging with other people regarding to apologetics. We're going to continue to look at the tactics curriculum. So we're going to play a video on DNA. I love science. This stuff is cool. So let's play it. There is, if you're really interested in the DNA stuff, this episode of Science Uprising, if you go to the website, scienceuprising.com, and you click the DNA link, there is a longer, about 22, 25-minute um, explanation of the DNA code and how it's, uh, what its implications are on um, teleology um, there. So this really, like, man, I want to learn more, that video goes in much deeper. It's really interesting. Um, just to give you an idea of how much code you have, um, and expect even a single-celled organism. So a single strand of DNA, so one strand, right, has as much information on it as um, one volume of the Encyclopedia Britannica, which if you've ever, okay, when I was growing up, you'd go to the library and there was something called an encyclopedia, okay? It was about, it was about this thick, and they came in volumes, okay? And, you, and now you go on the Internet and you think wiki, is, is your encyclopedia, and you pay money to some Swedish organization to keep it updated for you. Um, but it's a lot of information on a single strand of DNA. And so to give you kind of an idea of that, a single-celled or, celled organism, single-celled organism, has as much information in it as 300 volumes of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Single-celled organism. So when we talk about origins, when we talk about origins of life, we're, we're, what, what a neo-Darwinist has to say is that from nothing, from building blocks, amino acids, we suddenly have something so complex that it carries as much information as 300 volumes of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Does that make sense? So that's the jump. That's the single-celled organism. For you as an organism, if we, on a straight line, just the size of your DNA, put like lined up all the DNA information in your body, in your body, even you as a non-developed, fully adult yet, well, some of you, um, you would go, your DNA would run to the sun and back multiple times. Like that's how much information is stored in your body, right? And we're human. Now imagine every other blueprint on the planet of every other type of animal. Um, so, information is not only present, it isn't just Bob is buried here with a banana. It's literally volumes of information that exist in a single cell, let alone a human. So that's why we infer if there's that much information, where did it come from, right? Now, I want to make something clear when it comes to Darwinian evolution that they're talking about. There are two types of evolution. Where's Ari? You're in the middle of biology. Uh, do you, can you name the two types of evolution? I'll tell your uh, teacher for you. Oh, come on! Oh, come on. Who's taking biology? What are the two types of evolution? Not Jay, a student who has uh, 
taken biology? Did any of you pass biology? Anybody? Two types of evolution. Amanda, save your sister. No, they're not. Very good. So we and the genetic code teaches us we have no we have no reason to doubt microevolution. So when people are like, you're anti-evolution. Well, no, I'm not. I believe in microevolution just like the nice guy. That's why I believe a pug and a German shepherd are from the same family. But they're both dogs. Right? We believe that. The problem is not color, form. It is when new code is introduced that drastically changes everything. It's when we go from flying squirrel to bat, which is a huge morphological change, right? They both fly. Well, one glides. Sorry. Don't want to offend the bats. So both are silent and deadly. Um, one uses sonar, one doesn't. Um, so know that that's what we're talking about. We are, we are, we're fine with evolution. It's the change in form that we have the problem with. And that is, again, all goes back to information. Where are we getting the new information? Where are we getting the new information? If you're going to talk about chance and what that means in the classroom, well, I think it's just time plus chance gives us goo through the zoo to you, right? We think that's it. Um, but we need to talk about what chance is and what it isn't. And we'll talk about that during transformation groups because that's typically one of the major responses you'll get. But again, let me give you the syllogism that you can give to people. Information is created by an intelligent cause. Life on the planet is made up of information. Therefore, life of the planet is created by an intelligent cause. It's a very simple argument. Okay? And you can use that. This is why I believe in a designer because we're made up of information. And I don't believe information comes from natural causes. And science backs that up. Like every scientific experiment backs that up. Namely because there are an intelligent cause in the science lab. They wear white lab coats. And information is gathered. Okay. I'm going to switch gears like a bad transmission. Um, we're gonna, <laughs> that's a bad transmission, okay? Um, so you have a Tesla, you don't know what that is. Transmission in a car, um, so it's not a computer switch, it's, it's, it's something called, is it an alternator? No, transmission, it's a transmission. <laughs> I just replaced my alternator, it's fresh in my back pocket. Um, it was painful. Um, but transmission changes gears in your car as you drive. If you have a bad transmission, um, your engine falls out or uh, your engine blows up or something like that. I, I, that, I, saw, I saw it on Looney Tunes or something like that. Um, so it's hard. Um, we're going to switch gears to talk about the tactics. Last week we talked about the Colombo tactic, which is a way to have conversations with people that draw them out, inform you, and is a way to defend the faith. Because when people make a claim, what was the claim that was made last week? Who remembers the claim that was made last week? I don't believe in God. I believe in 
Excellent. When someone says that, what should be our first question? What do you mean by that? Excellent. Similar voice that. What do you mean by that? Okay, good. What do you mean by that? And the beauty of the Colombo tactic is it puts you in the driver's seats in conversations that otherwise might be a little awkward and potentially a little tense. When you are in a conversation where someone makes a bold claim like that, right? I don't believe in God, I believe in science. I don't go to church, it's full of hypocrites. I don't X, Y, and Z. Statements that are made to kind of instigate, poke, prod. Um, sometimes genuinely, other times just, honestly, just to create tension. Um, these type of questions put you in the driver's seat to help place a stone in their shoe. Right? Um, I, heard a gr- I heard a great analogy this week. Um, you've heard the phrase, um, uh, it was by Jesus, um, the fields are ripe for harvest, but the workers are few. Right? Um, and he calls people to go out to the harvest to save souls. And that is a good thing, right? I hope all of you at one time in your life lead someone to the Lord. I, I, I do. But um, for those of you that are farmers in here, um, you know that the harvest is at the very end of the season, right? Um, farmers spend much of their time tilling the soil, preparing the soil, clearing the soil, planting the seed, putting the fertilizer down, watering the crop, looking at the farmer's almanac to see what type of winter it's going to be. Like they, There's literally a hundred steps before the harvest is ready. And many of us in our Christian lives, you know, we're like, well, we want to be a harvester. We want to be a Billy Graham for Jesus, right? And that's good. But most of us will be seed planters. Most of us will be seed planters. Where we are preparing the harvest. We are the steps towards it happening. And that's okay. When I was in eighth grade, before I became a believer, the ground was hard and cold. And it took people loving me, people presenting me with the arguments for the existence of God, people explaining evil for me. They prepared the soil, they planted the seeds, they watered. And then it was only after all that that I found Jesus, or Jesus found me. And that's how it is in the lives of many of your friends. As you're like, I just want you want to close the deal right now, right? Like you just said, I don't believe in God, I want to believe in science. And many of us are like, okay, well, let me tell you about Jesus, right? Like let me walk you through the five steps to where you can be profess Christ. And a lot of times they're not ready for that yet, right? And apologetics begins to help break down barriers so that you can get to a gospel conversation with somebody later on. And that's a good, good thing. So when you leave your house in the morning, sure, pray the prayer boldly, Lord, may I share the gospel with somebody today and may a change be wrought in their lives to where they come to faith. That's great. Also pray for just being a seed planter, for a harvest, for a soil tiller. To where using these type of questions, you can put a stone in someone's shoe. And the Colombo question number one is designed to do that. What do you mean by that? 
And it says a couple things. It's a fact-finding mission. It tells you what they believe. But if you know any three-year-olds, after they know what, they want to know why. Why, right? It drives me nuts. I love my children, but many times they ask why questions to things that there's no reason why, right? Why did they put a cookie stand in the mall? Because Jesus loves us, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. They're great American, and they're amazing, right? I don't know why, kid, but eat your cookie, okay? But well, many times there are whys, right? So the Columbo question number two is to help answer the why question. So if Columbo question what, number one is, what do you mean by that? Columbo question number two is, how did you come to that conclusion? Everyone say how. How did you come, did you come to that conclusion? To that conclusion. Okay. You, that, now that's just like a basic phrase, right? You can say things like, why do you believe that? It's like, oh, that's really interesting. What are some of the reasons that you came to that belief? Right? You can literally ask that a hundred different ways. But again, it puts you in the driver's seat. It makes, to the other person, it seems like you're really interested, and you should be really interested in what they're saying. It makes you a great conversationalist. Um, and you can just converse using these two questions, right? And you can keep going back to these two things because they're going to make claims over and over again telling you what and why. And you can always go back to these type of phrases. Well, explain that a little bit more. I don't understand it. I really want to understand this. Um, please give me one or two reasons. That's um, a good thing. Unfortunately, you will be shocked when you ask some of your friends these questions. Why do you believe that? That You will get many times, I don't know. My parents believe that. My science teacher told me. I learned it from Bob Ross on Netflix, right? It is a happy little tree. Well, why is it a happy little tree? How did you come to that conclusion? You made a mistake, Bob. Right? Um, what we need to know is that this helps uncover some of the reasons. So when someone says, I don't believe in God, I believe in science, how did you come to that conclusion? Right? It's no longer a science question, it's a philosophical question. And this is a good type of thing to have. And you need to notice this too with your friends and yourself. Is that most people don't make arguments, they make claims. They don't make arguments, they make claims. And there is a very big difference. Okay? Richard Dawkins, he's a famous atheist. He uses what's known as the blind watchmaker analogy to explain how flight might have evolved. I'm going to read it to you in an awful English accent. You're welcome. <laughs> How did wings get their start? Many, animal, well, many animals leap from the bow to bow and sometimes fall to the ground, especially in a small animal. The whole body surface catches the air and assists the leap or breaks the fall by acting as a crude aerofoil. Any tendency to increase the ratio of surface area to weight would help. For example, flaps of skin growing at the angles of joints. From here, there is a continuous series of gradual graduations of gliding wings and hence to flapping wings. And it's a great example of what might have happened. But is it an argument? No, it's a claim. It's an explanation. There's a huge difference between an argument and an explanation. 
The problem with Dawkins' story is twofold. One, it sweeps large amounts of new genetic information that is needed to build wings and complex wings underneath the rug. Where does it come from? Where did you get that information? And two, second, where does the mechanical, sensory, psychomotor alterations required all come together at the same time to create something not just drastically better, but different? Where do those things come from? Information. That's where it comes from. Where do we get information? Well, we know from all science experiments that information comes from intelligent causes. Okay? His explanation might be possible, but is it plausible or is it probable? So everyone say possible. Plausible. Probable. People make possible claims all the time. Right? I don't believe Jesus of Nazareth actually existed. Is it possible? Sure. A lot of things are possible. It's possible that we all didn't exist five seconds ago, but we were created six seconds ago with a full history of memory. It's possible. Does, does it mean it's probable? Nope. I have no reason to believe it, right? And so possible doesn't mean anything. And people make possible claims about reality all the time. Okay? Plausible. Um, is it... Um, pl- what was my analogy for this? Is it plausible, right? Is it, oh, this was it. Is it plausible that there is what is known as a Q document in um, historical textual criticism? This is what I mean. If you've ever read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who's read Matthew, Mark, and Luke in here? A couple of you, right? If you've noticed, it's very similar. It kind of, like, it, the breakdown of it, like, oh, it's the same. I read this story once. It was in Mark's book. It was really good. Much shorter. A lot more action. Right? Like, you've read these stories, and so it's theorized. It's called the Q document that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all pulled from a Q document or a, like, a source of all the different... Um, first-hand accounts to help create their Gospels. Is that plausible? Yeah. And we know from... I mean, it all kind of matches. It kind of makes sense. We don't have the Q document, right? We have no evidence of the Q document. So we can't really back it up. But it makes more sense than Jesus of Nazareth never existed or you didn't exist five seconds ago. Right? Um... So there's the difference between possible and plausible. And then probable is when we have tons of evidence that points to a specific thing, right? Jesus of Nazareth claimed to be God, had miracles out the wazoo, healed people, raised people from the dead, was crucified, dead, and buried by Roman soldiers, and rose again on the third day. And there were literally hundreds of witnesses that saw him in a resurrected state. Now, why do I say that's not just possible, but plausible or probable? Because every eyewitness testimony that we have, everyone, non-Christian and Christian, states those facts. Even the non-Christian eyewitness testimony states, the Christians believe he rose from the dead And many of them claim to have seen him. We don't have anyone else's journal. 
saying, didn't happen. You know, we were all doing shrooms out in the desert, and then we all saw a guy that looked like JC, right? Jesus Christ, okay? Like, we, there's no... There's no contrary evidence, so we don't, we don't put that in the thing of possible or plausible, but we put it in the lane of probable. And the only reason we would put it in the lane of the impossible is if we held to a materialistic worldview that denied miracles to begin with. But notice it is not the evidence that denies our claims. It is the worldview that limits the possibilities. Does that make sense? I got some, yes, some. There's a lot there, okay? So possible, plausible, probable. Um, I say all this to say, when someone makes a claim about reality, we have to ask ourselves, did someone just give me an argument or give an opinion? And if it's the latter, that's when we use the Colombo tactic. That's when we use those two questions. So why are we learning this? Again, so we can be planters and toil preparers. And so when the harvest comes gospel can be presented and clear in people's lives.